Tonight we begin the fifth and the final book of the Tanya. It's called Kuntras Achron. Kuntras Achron in Hebrew literally means the later addendum or the last addition because that's pretty much what it is. I've told you before, earlier in this series, that the Tanya was printed in a number of editions. First, the first time the Tanya was printed in 1796, it only had book one and book two. The disciplinary part of the Alter Rebbe's philosophy, how to live as a Benoni, as a Jew who is in control of your thought, speech, and action. And then book two, which was more of a theological dissertation on Chabad's understanding of the unity of God. What does it mean when we say Hashem is one? That was the original version of the Tanya. That was it, just two books. The Tanya was reprinted multiple times. It was super popular. And 10 years later, in 1806, the Alter Rebbe, who was still alive, added book three to the Tanya, which was all about repentance, Teshuva, which is actually this time of year, the time of Teshuva. <clears throat> then the Alter Rebbe passed away in 1812. And his children, his three sons, set out on a mission to collect all of his handwritten Hasidic works. Because the Alter Rebbe, unlike almost all the Rebbes that followed him, didn't write his own Hasidus. He lectured, he gave public discourses, but other people wrote it down. The Rebbe was the same way, by the way. He rarely wrote down anything he spoke. He spoke, there was a team of transcribers who wrote it down. The Alter Rebbe was the same way mostly public speaking, and so it was very rare to have a Hasidic insight in his own handwriting. The Tanya was essentially it. That was it, in his own handwriting. But he did write the, but he did write the Tanya, and he did write some letters okay. that we've been studying the last book. It was the book of letters. Those were all handwritten letters. Was it in so, huh? All in Hebrew. All in Hebrew. Speaking was Yiddish. Yiddish he would speak in Yiddish, transcribed in Hebrew. So after he passed away, his son said, we have to collect all his handwritten works. And they sent letters. Anybody has a handwritten copy of something my father wrote, send it in to us. Just a copy even. But we, we want to have some way to have it. And they collected a number of letters and notes. And they said, how are we going to preserve this? You know, it wasn't like today where you can print anything. The, the, the logical way to preserve it was to add it to the Tanya. The Tanya was a super popular book. And so in 1814, but a year and a half after the Alter passed, they printed what we know today as the complete Tanya. And they wrote, our father published a Tanya with three parts. And we found, after much searching, whatever is left of his handwritten writings, and we added two more books to the Tanya. One book we called Igeret HaKodesh, that was the, letter, the book we just finished before, the book of letters. Letters that the Alter Rebbe wrote to inspire people to give tzedakah, or for other things, for prayer. And then, book five of the Tanya. And what's book five? They write, this is how they describe it, Alter Rebbe's sons. They say, it's some of the Alter Rebbe's notes that he wrote while compiling the original Tanya. So the Tanya is based on Kabbalah. The Alter Rebbe was studying Kabbalah and preparing the Tanya. And he came across different contradictions and different issues in the Zoharic texts and in the Arizal's texts. And he analyzed them deeply. And he resolved them and he wrote some of his resolutions in shorthand cryptic notes. They call it pilpul vi'iyun amok. They call it a very deep uh, examination and analysis. 
very much Kabbalistic nature. That's where we're headed. Shorthand Kabbalistic notes. Nine of them. There's nine notes. Actually, in some editions of the Tanya, some early ones, the numbers keep going after the fourth book. So we had 32 letters. Some of them have tonight's note, which I'm calling note one. They have it as letter 33. So it's a continuation in some texts of the, of the original Tanya. But the point is, it's a different type of study. More esoteric. I, I think that each, letter, each note has a very practical takeaway as well. But uh, the form of the discussions are going to take more of a Kabbalistic form. So bear with me. I'm going to do my best to explain everything and distill it in a very simplified fashion. But just know we're setting the bar at a more Kabbalistic philosophical place than uh, heartfelt or uh, you know, human-oriented language. For the next three weeks, notes one, two, and three, they're all on very related topics. And they revolve around the discussion in the last third of book one of the Tanya. Really, chapters 39 and 40. If you have time, go back to Spotify, listen to the classes. It's very, very, very much related. The conversations that we're going to have now in the next two weeks, and those conversations are very related. And uh, what, what is the bottom line of the issue? So, basically, one of the main propositions that the Alter Rebbe makes in the Tanya is that as we live our lives as Jews, we're really living two simultaneous types of Judaism. There's two Judaisms going on at the same time. He doesn't use these words, these are my words. But I'll say we have a ritual, a ritual Judaism, and a spiritual Judaism. The ritual Judaism is the Judaism of action. Do this, don't do that, eat this, don't eat that, read the book of laws, and you'll know how to behave. The spiritual Judaism is the Judaism that goes beyond that. It's the Judaism of feeling, the Judaism of passion, the Judaism of finding meaning and depth in what it is that we do. Let's call it our own relationship with Hashem. And they, they work together. Every single Jew, no matter who you are, no matter how big or great or how small you are, are putting on the same tefillin every day, eating the same matzah on Pesach, shaking the same lulav on Sukkot. We're all doing the deed. But each of us is obligated to find how Judaism touches our own hearts and to make a space where there's a personal connection between me and Hashem. They're both equally important. They both have to exist. The way the Alter Rebbe frames it elsewhere in a different Hasidic discourse is he says, the feeling and the emotion in your Judaism is super important because it's personal. But in the end, what's ultimately important and what's paramount above all else is the ritual Judaism. That's what's real. Why is that what's real? Because in the end of the day, what you're looking for with Judaism is a relationship with Hashem. Hashem is infinite. So long as the terms of the relationship are, are dictated by you, to the extent that I can feel Hashem, that I understand the significance, that I appreciate what I'm doing, it's always limited and finite. 
only if you follow the relationship on the ways that Hashem set the terms can you be guaranteed that you're getting close to Him. He says, if you do this and this mitzvah, this and this deed on this and this day, you are achieving a closeness with me. Well, if he said so, that's, that's where it's really happening. You can't discount the heart because that's what makes us feel involved. But in the end of the day, as one of the other Rebbes once said, if your Judaism is only what you feel, then that's a Judaism of what you want. If you're really looking for a Judaism of what God wants, sometimes you have to leave that arena and ultimately just do what he says you have to do. You know, it's fascinating. One of the Rebbe's, I think, most revolutionary talks that he gave was uh, on Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu, of course, is the first Jew, but he only appears in the Torah for the first time at 75 years old. Hashem says to Avraham, Lech Lecha, you know, go out of your house and go on to journey to Israel. But from the Midrash, you know, the oral Torah, we know so much about Avraham's youth. This man did incredible things. He basically brought monotheism to the world. He debated all the atheists of the time. He debated all those who believed in multiple gods. He gave his life, almost, in self-sacrifice for his beliefs. He jumped into a fire. A whole really, really rich youth he had. But in the Torah, no mention of that. And the Rebbe once asked, why? You know, what's the reason for that? Shouldn't we know more about our, our, our biggest forefather? So the Rebbe said, that's exactly the message Torah is trying to teach us. Until Hashem came to Avram and gave him his first mitzvah, all of the connection that Avram experienced with God was coming from the bottom up. It was coming from him. He came to the logical conclusion, there can't be a world without a creator. Right? He observed the sun and the moon, and first he thought this one was God, that one was God, then he came to the realization, and he destroyed all of his father's idols and the whole business. But it was all coming from his own brain. Where does Avraham as a Jew begin? Where does Avraham as our forefather begin? When Hashem tells him, now you do what I want. Now you're living on God's terms? Aha! That's where the real Avraham Avinu is. And with that, the Torah teaches us forevermore that a Jew has to have both. You have to approach God from within your personality and also listen from the top down. But in the end, which is the, which is the, uh, the one that wins? If they clash, the ritual Judaism always wins over the spiritual Judaism. Matter of fact, unfortunately over our history there have been many, many movements that tried to de-emphasize the value of ritual. They said, do away with the mitzvahs, all we want is the heart. Who cares what the code of Jewish law says? We do what feels good, we do what makes sense. And in the end, none of them survived. They ended up assimilating into the, Jewish, into the non-Jewish nations, unfortunately, or coming back. Because in the end, the one Judaism that stands true against all odds and in all circumstances is the one that is committed to doing the will of Hashem, to fulfilling indeed the will of Hashem. So that's the case for ritual Judaism. Nevertheless, there is a case to be made for the emotional Judaism. And in fact, the whole <coughs> last third of the Tanya in Book 1, chapters 38 to 53, is all about the importance of the emotional connection. The Altar Rebbe bases himself on a statement in the Talmud. It says, Mitzvah below kavana keguf below neshama. A mitzvah with no passion is like a body without a soul. The body is there, it has everything about it, but there's no life. You can do mitzvahs 
do whatever Hashem wants, but if there's no passion, it's dry. So the Alter Rebbe says, you must imbue your mitzvahs with a feeling. True, always remember priorities, know what's most important, but don't go around living a dead Jewish life. I think at the time I told you the story of the Baal Shem Tov. He was visiting a shul in Germany and uh, in Frankfurt. And he came into the shul and he said, wow, I feel so much Torah here and so much tefillah here. So many holy words of prayer are in the synagogue. And the rabbi said, yeah, yeah, of course, we have many minions here every day, many classes, many things. But somehow the Bashamba didn't look happy. So he said, what's going on? You say we're full of Torah, but you don't look happy. He says, yeah, actually, it's not a compliment. The Zohar teaches that when your Torah and mitzvahs are imbued with feeling, they get wings and they soar upwards. Unfortunately, all the Torah and prayers in this shul are dead. They were done robotically, mechanically, with no feeling, so they fill up the shul, and I can't come in. There's no space. So it's super important, according to the Hasidic perspective, to appreciate that the deed is paramount, but to charge it with a little excitement, a little chayas, a little kavana, a little intent. <clears throat> and it becomes a whole thesis. How to do it, what kind of feelings, love, fear, you know, feelings of closeness, feelings of distance, feelings of love, feelings of respect, a whole, different, a whole bunch of different ways. In this note, note one of book five of the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe explores the relationship and the different roles of deed and passion from the Kabbalistic perspective. What happens if you do just the deed with no passion, no intent? What happens if you do the deed with intent? And what happens if you only have intent but no deed? I'm going to study the meaning of the shofar, but I'm not going to actually blow it, you know? I'm going to study the meaning of Pesach, but I'm not going to actually eat the matzah. Is there worth to that and what happens in the higher realms? And the discussion is based on three passages in the Zohar. Ready? Put on your Zohar caps for a minute, your Kabbalah caps. They're not so complicated. Just keep, keep track of it. One statement in the Zohar goes like this. Emotion that's invested in the mitzvah achieves nothing on high. That's the words in the Zohar. Lo avid mide. It doesn't accomplish anything. Not for the bad or for the good. Thought, the mind, the heart that's invested into the deed means nothing. The deed, the speech, those are things that count. The Zohar is talking about in context on Shabbos. You know, on Shabbos, you're not supposed to talk mundane things. But the Zohar says you can think mundane things because thought does nothing. If it's just your heart in it, but you're not actually speaking words or making active decisions, it has no bad effect. And also on the good, the Zohar also says the same thing. A person wants to awaken a response from above, he has to do something or say something. Just thinking a good thought is not going to do anything. Yeah, that's one statement in the Zohar. Thinking, thought, which we're going to translate as emotion, passion, achieves nothing on high. That's one. Number two. 
It's the emotion invested in your mitzvah that allows the speech or the deed to fly upwards. So if you have a speech or a deed alone, it does nothing. It's going to stay down here dead. It's the thought, it's the emotion that you put into it that allows it to fly upwards. That's number two. And number three, speech or deed alone breaks through the barriers of the higher heavens. Again, thought achieves nothing. Emotions achieve nothing. That's number one. Number two, emotions are what allow your speech and deed to fly upwards. And number three, speech alone flies upwards. So now we have two contradictions here, if you're following. One about emotions, one about speech. The, the, the emotional contradiction is, is it nothing or is it what's making my, it's, it's, it's the wings of my mitzvah. One Zohar says thought is nothing. The other Zohar says thought is what gives the wings. And then speech is also, or deed is also confusing. Because one of them says without the emotion it does nothing. Only with the emotion it breaks boundaries. And the other Zohar says no, speech alone breaks the boundaries. Blatant, seemingly contradictions in the Zohar. And the Alter Rebbe, in this note, provides the answer. Both. Speech or deed. Because some mitzvahs are speech, some mitzvahs are deed. If you learn Torah, that's a mitzvah. If you give tzedakah, that's also a mitzvah. One is a deed mitzvah, one is a speech mitzvah. In both cases, they achieve on their own, they break the barriers. So Alter Rebbe says, in the note, he uses cryptic, shorthand, Kabbalistic language. I'm going to explain it to you. Here's what he says in a sentence. There's different kinds of achievements and breaking barriers. The speech or the deed alone does break certain barriers. It gets in, but it doesn't get all the way in. When the emotion accompanies it, then it gets all the way in. Because that's the power of emotion, to get all the way in. But emotion alone will stay in and achieve nothing in terms of coming back down. So it achieves everything in terms of bringing you up, but it achieves nothing in terms of bringing you back down. That's the one, the one line answer that answers all the questions. Speech and deed are powerful enough to start you on the way in. The emotion gets you all the way in. But you've got to come back down in the end. The idea is not to be a totally spiritual person. You gotta, the effect has to be tangible. That's only if the emotion is accompanied by a deed. Emotion alone will just get up there and not achieve anything in terms of bringing something back down. And next week we'll see why that is. That's note two. Why is it that you have to have a deed to bring it back down? So what does this mean? Going in, not all the way in, staying up, coming down. Back in those chapters, in book one of the time, year 3940, I also mentioned this point. It's not, I, I don't think, ever explicit in the fullest extent in Hasidic discourses, but it's kind of implicit when you learn the discussions. <coughs> the human being is a microcosm of reality. So in many ways, when we examine our own makeup, we can learn many things about how the parallel universes work. Um, in the, bigger, in the bigger scheme of things. 
When we examine the human body, we see that the human being has a center, the brain. Quantitatively, it's very small, tiny little piece of gray matter. But qualitatively, it is the seat of everything that makes us human. So our body is very dynamic, trillions of cells, but the brain is where it's at. In the same way Kabbalah teaches, every world has a brain. Every world has a center. Every world is very dynamic, like the human being is, but there's always a center, the brain of the world. In the physical world, it's the Bet HaMikdash. In Jerusalem, the Holy Temple was the brain of the world. That's where the energy for the entire world was contained and came forth. It radiated from there to the whole world. Matter of fact, the, uh, the prophet describes the Bet HaMikdash's construction as having windows that were narrow on the inside and wide on the outside. It's a famous Hasidic teaching, right? Why? If the, in the olden days, they had to make windows like that for, to, to, to bring in light. So it'd be the opposite. You'd put narrow on the outside, wider on the inside to spread the light. But the Bet HaMikdash was the opposite. Why? Because the idea was to bring the light from the Bet HaMikdash to the whole world. Mystically, what that means is the energy was coming down through here to the rest of the world. Okay. So is the soul in the brain? Yes. Matter of fact, according to Kabbalah, the soul is in the brain. There are texts that say a soul is in the heart. It's another, there's two parts to the soul. It's another discussion. But, but primarily, it's in, the, it's in the brain. That's true. That's a lower level of the soul. But this, the, the, the headquarters. Headquarters is the brain. Headquarters, exactly. And the same thing happens if you rise up above the spiritual realms. Kabbalah talks about four worlds, Atzilut, Briah, Yetzirah, Asiyah. Every spiritual world also has a Bet HaMikdash, also has a center, which is the energy of that world. The world is also very dynamic. There's angels in the world, there's souls, there's holy chambers, there's a whole bunch of things in the world, but there's a center. And every world, you know, people use the word world loosely, not really getting what it means. World means state of consciousness. You ever hear the expression, this guy's in his own world? <laughs> yeah? We use that even in English. He's in his own world. What does that mean? It means he just, he, 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 he sees things in a different way. So when we speak of four worlds or different worlds in Kabbalah, we mean there are different states of consciousness, different ways of appreciating Hashem and what He means to you in that particular realm. Some worlds function on the emotional level. They appreciate God out of their, uh, out of the heart more natural, instinctive ways. Some worlds appreciate God from a more intellectual consciousness. Some worlds appreciate God from like an inborn consciousness. They're, like, they're so attached to Hashem that they feel Him as part of their own identity. Different realms. Every world has souls. And all souls end up here. That's how it is. We have to live in this world. The lowliest, but the most important. All the action happens here. We do mitzvahs, we do Torah. <clears throat> and Kabbalah teaches that as every soul journeys to this world and does whatever it needs to do, each time a mitzvah or a proper deed is done, a deposit is made into the center of its world. So if you're a soul from the world of Atzilut, every time you do a mitzvah in this world, 
Cha-ching! There's a deposit happening in the Beit HaMikdash of the world of Atzilut. You're from Berea, you do a mitzvah, deposit in Berea. Yitzira, same thing. When the neshama finishes its journey and comes back to the world from which it came, all the light that it deposited in the Beit HaMikdash of that world now begins to radiate to that neshama. That's the reward that, it's, that it experiences. The spiritual reward that it experiences in the next world is a direct result of the mitzvahs that it did in this world, making slow, slowly but surely deposits in the Beit HaMikdash. Says Kabbalah. You know how even in this world, some light our eyes cannot see? Or some frequencies our ears cannot hear? We have to be adjusted. There has to be the right tools. Right? Huh? Most, exactly. The same thing is true of souls and the godly light. Just because a soul did a mitzvah and deposited an energy and it's radiating out towards the neshama after it's done the journey doesn't mean the soul can appreciate it. Doesn't mean the soul's on the right frequency to hear it or experience it. The gear, the equipment, the tools that the neshama has to allow itself to experience whatever it produced with its mitzvahs is directly commensurate with the amount of heart and emotion that was put into the mitzvahs. So the mitzvah deeds are making the deposit in the Beit HaMikdash. The lights are shining out, but are only going to be able to be received and experienced based on the level of heart, intent, excitement, feeling that charged those mitzvahs. So this explains, I think, what the author Rebbe is saying in this note. You do a mitzvah, just the speech or the deed. So because your soul comes from a given world or realm, there, there's a deposit that's happening. The energy is returning back to that realm. But because there was no accompanying emotion, in the words of the Alter Rebbe in this note, it doesn't get all the way in. It gets stuck in the periphery. The full deposit cannot happen. If you accompany your mitzvah and your deed, your speech, or whatever, whatever kind of mitzvah it is, with a feeling charge, the charge propels the power of that mitzvah to the nucleus, to the center, to the brain of whatever realm or God consciousness or world your neshama lives in. Somehow, that machshava, it's called in the Eitz Chaim, that, that, that thought the mindfulness, the presence, the significance that you attach to the mitzvah has the power to get all the way in. All the way into the Bet HaMikdash. All the way into the center. But a Jew cannot say, you know what, I'll just have the emotion. And it'll propel me all the way in. Because then there will be no tangible effect. Even if it does get all the way in. But there's no return. There's no return. And if Hashem only wanted you to make noise in the spiritual world, then you know what? He would never have brought you down here to begin with. You could have stayed in paradise. Your soul could have stayed there, had a great time, and do all its things. The very fact that you find yourself down here means that Hashem wants both. He wants you to reach all the way in, but then He wants you to do a withdrawal and, and, and have it change something in this, in this reality. 
one of my Tanya teachers used to say that, and it, it, it's so true because it happened to me also, that he, he remembers that when he was a teenager, he used to go on Mitzoyim, you know, on Friday afternoons, go to put on tefillin with different people. They come to your office, right, sometimes? Every Friday. Yeah. Every Friday. And they'll put on, huh? It's a new group. That's right, because it's a new year. It's a new rav. New rabbi in training. So they send the boys out, and they come with these, uh, you know, tefillin paper, like the papers where it has the Shema to read. And you wrap the guy up with tefillin, and you give him the paper, and you say, read it. And so he takes the paper. It happened to me so many times. And he's, he's scanning it. So you go, no, no, read it. So he goes, no, what do you mean? I'm, I'm reading it. No, no, you have to say it. Well, why? Why do I have to say it? I'm reading. I can read all the words. It says everything. It has to be recited. Because it's not for us to process. It's for us to... To achieve the effect. And in God's realm, it's the physical deed. It's the speech. When you have an effect on the outside world, we'll see more about this next week, that's where everything happens. So while the emotion and the spirituality and the charge will get you all the way into where you have to go, but the return is equally important and that only happens if you have an accompanying, accompanying actual mitzvah. Dr. Rebbe says, you know, in the Gemara it says that a person who, um, who eats a meal and then he benches, he says the grace after meals in his thought, doesn't enunciate the words, you don't fulfill your obligation. Because in halacha, we don't recognize thought, we only recognize speech. So the Altar says, you know, it's a very unusual word. You haven't fulfilled your obligation. You say, Lo yatza, and, and it's full of that in the Talmud. Lo yatza, you haven't fulfilled. What does it mean you haven't fulfilled your obligation? Altar says the word obligation is a lot bigger than you might think. It's not just you haven't fulfilled your obligation for benching. You haven't fulfilled your obligation as a human being on earth. Your obligation, the purpose for which your neshama was sent to this world, is to do as many physical acts that will bring God to as many physical points on this earth. So long as you keep the benching in your brain, you haven't brought him down to your mouth. You haven't brought him down to the world. You haven't made the sound waves that create the ripple effect that affect the world. So you haven't fulfilled your obligation. Not your specific obligation. Your general obligation as a Jew. Because only when you do, speech is also called doing. Only when you do is when you have the full cycle effect that Hashem wants you to have with the mitzvahs. So if you say the silent Amida silently and you don't repeat it out loud, <clears throat> you don't get the effect? So that's a good question. The truth is that the silent Amida, yes, yes, the silent Amida, you're supposed to mouth the words. In fact, Shulchan Aruch says, it's supposed to be audible to your own ears. Not just the Amidah, but even if you do the Shema. Yeah, the whole prayer. Yeah, yeah, the whole prayer. The whole prayer. And he's saying it's called the silent Amidah. He's, he's yeah, making a yeah, good point. Yeah. He's making a good point. Yeah, kind of like a, like a, like a, silent, yeah, a silent whisper, a silent little mumble. Because that's part of the reason why. is because you're supposed to speak it out. Saying the letters. The, the silent Amidah repetition, there's different, different reasons why we do that. But yeah, the silent Amidah shouldn't be so silent. It should be more, a, little, a little bit more pronounced. Nobody else has to hear you. Just, uh, just for yourself. When I was a child, my father <coughs> would supervise me very closely during Shabbos. And he says, I can't hear you. <laughs> I said, 
But your lips aren't moving. Ah. There you go. Lips you know, we're coming from Rosh Hashanah. That's what it says by Chana in the Haftorah that we read. She, it says she was praying, her lips were moving, but you couldn't hear her voice. And the Talmud says, from this we learn that in the Salat Amida, your lips have to move, but you don't, have, you don't, you don't hear the voice. So there you go. You have to hear it inside. So it takes even You have longer. to hear it. It takes even longer, exactly. <laughs> we're all about making your life a little harder, you know what I mean? You come to Shul, we're not just gonna we're gonna give you the whole packet. <clears throat> With this discussion, the Alter Rebbe also explains another Kabbalah concept. I'll keep this one short. It's not directly related, just he just the same thesis flows through both concepts. When we study Torah, we're taught that we connect to God's mind. Because we're processing godly intellect, so our mind becomes connected with God's mind. But how can that be said of the entire Torah? You know, the parts of Torah that are legal, (coughs) Jewish law, that I understand. Hashem decided every one of the Jewish laws, right? So if I learn a Jewish law, I'm getting into God's mind. What if I read stories in the Torah? You know, the whole first book of the Torah is basically stories, right? Or Agadah. I'm reading stuff that are not Jewish law. So even if you tell me, and it's true, by the way, that most of the Torah's mysteries are hidden in the stories, if you can decipher and decode the messages, the deepest lessons can be taken away. But simply, when you read the story of Avraham and Sarah, Adam and Chava, you know, Yitzchak and Rivka, all the stories of Bereshis, you read the stories, you just have stories. So how can you say that your mind is connected with Hashem's mind in, in that moment? So one resolution the author quotes from the, from the Arizal is that you're right. Your mind is not connected to God's mind in those moments. But because there's a mirror reality, everything that happens here happens in a parallel universe. So the source of your neshama, when you study the Torah Bereshit, it, it buzzes the source of your soul. And in that moment, the source of your soul experiences godliness, but not you down here. Says the Alter Rebbe, I want to propose something very deep. We would only have to resort to that if the person just was reading voracious like a book. He was scanning it with his thought. Just reading, reading the book, reading the story. Then you're right. And there is nothing about you that's connected to God, linked to the divinity. Because when there's just thought involved and no actual active speech or deed, nothing about you has a tangible effect with Hashem. But says the Alter Rebbe, based on our above discussion, if you were to enunciate the words that you're reading, you're reading the Chumash, and you say the words, and we're coming up now, after Simchat Torah, we start the Torah again, Bereshit, every week, and you can make this an actual takeaway. You read the words of Bereshit Bara Elokim. You enunciate, you pronounce the stories of the Torah because the, uh, the deed within that study, the speech within that study has a power as it relates to mitzvahs, so it also has a power as it relates to study. The fact that you're pronouncing the words connects you to divinity in that moment because you're doing what Hashem wants. And says the Alter Rebbe, if you were to charge that, emotion, that speech with emotion, you didn't just practice your Hebrew reading, but you read the words with feeling, with excitement, 
those words go even higher. You connect to an even higher level. Because when thought, when, when deed is charged with emotion, it goes all the way in and all the way back down. But that's an aside. The main thesis of the Alter Rebbe is that you should know that every mitzvah at the end of the day should have a feeling. If it has a feeling, it'll help it, it'll help it you know, go way, way, way higher. But don't suffice with the feeling. In the end, you have to do the deed. And if it's a choice between feeling and deed, which takes precedence? The deed. The deed. The deed. Every single time. And why? Because as much as feeling is what you want, deed is what Hashem wants. And I think we're approaching Yom Kippur. It's, it's a beautiful time. To re- it's a very good reflection point for the past year. How much am I doing what God wants? How much of my Judaism is centered around me? I do what's comfortable for me. I do what I like. You know what? This year I'm going to take a step to do something that Hashem likes. Even if I don't like it so much. Even if it's uncomfortable. Even if it's a push. Even if it's a little, little stretch for me. I'm going to stretch for Hashem. And I think if we do that, if everybody around the table makes a resolution to stretch a little bit for Hashem, Hashem is going to say, you know what? You stretch for me. I'll stretch for you. And He's going to bring us all the brachas in a good and revealed sweet new year. L'chaim! 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 L'chaim!